Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. Our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 84 of the podcast, the topic is the evolution of lean. Our guest is Professor Torbjörn Netland, Chair of Production and Operations Management at the top Swiss university ETH Zurich and co-founder of Ethan AI. In this conversation, we talk about the evolution of lean as a business phenomenon and the need for rigorous field research and how lean also is an evolving community of practice and its integration with new technologies, with the behavior, role and cognitive aspects of lean and the future outlook. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, but also for industrial engineers and for shop floor operators. Hosted by Futurist Trun Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip. Torbjörn, how are you today? I'm doing very fine. How are you doing, Trond? Yeah, I'm doing great. Excited to chat with you today, Torbjörn. You've got an interesting story. You're from uh, Sandane in, in Norway, right? But uh, now you're far from, from Sandane, although I guess you're still in the mountains or close. I'm actually close to a little lake. That's through the Swedish lake. And uh, yeah. as, as you know, I've been, I grew up with the fjords, Vestlanda in Norway. And I think actually not that far away from you. That's true. So I grew up, uh, you know, around Trondheim. So that's not too, too far from the county where you grew up. We've both done a bunch of things. You made it through uh, the cavalry and the military. You went to Georgetown University. And then you basically became a machine engineer, I believe have made it through various sort of academic iterations. And uh, right now you are at the Swiss University ETH in, in Zurich, and you're also a co-founder of Ethan AI, a manufacturing IT startup. You're a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council. You've done a, a bunch of things, and I think you're working on textbook on manufacturing management. Have I summarized any of your plans? Oh, that's pretty good. Actually, uh, we finished the textbook. We've done the full draft now. We're just doing the proofreading. I'm super excited to uh, see that going into print. You can't imagine how many years uh, me and Michelle Boudin has been working on that book uh, called Introduction to Manufacturing, actually. And uh, we think it will be something new. And we're uh, excited about that. But other than that, yes, I think you summarized my history pretty well. Industrial engineer, perhaps more than mechanical engineer, uh, from uh, Norwegian University of Science and Technology, where I think you also studied. And uh, yes, I spent some time in, uh, in the US at Georgetown University and also in the UK, in Cambridge, uh, with our friends at the Institute for Manufacturing. And now I'm at ETH Zurich, where I'm Professor of Production and Operations Management. That's cool. And, you know, we'll get into all of this. But first, we have to address you. you I think you claim to have the best moustache, you know, among the lean uh, people. Is that is that right? You're competing that's for it? Correct. That's, uh, it's not official, but I think that we can absolutely say that that's the best moustache in the lean world. I want to start with the moustache a little bit, because a moustache, uh, which I know because I just grew a beard, it takes a bit of concentration and method to it. Are you a very methodical person? I guess you have to be if you're in research. I mean, uh, there's no other way to do these things uh, than to be it structured. And, you know, first actually start with getting up every morning and uh, wash your face and do these things. And then uh, then it's pretty fast uh, when you got the routine going. There's a lot of hmm. good lean work in the grooming a mustache. Well, that's kind of what I was uh, aiming at, right? Because lean seems to mean quite a lot of things. But at the heart of it, it is a method. Am I, am I right about that? 
It's a method among other things. Uh, lean is a lot of uh, things to different people. I like to see it as a business phenomenon. It's a phenomenon you can study and observe in industries. And that phenomenon tend to take a lot of different kind of natures. Uh, people interpret it differently. They implement it differently. Some see it as tools. Some see it as methods. And others look at it as, as a full philosophy of how you should manage work. So I'm not judging which one of these are correct, but from a research perspective, I see all of these are, are actually going on out there. Can you give people who are new to Lean, or I guess even anybody, including Lean practitioners nowadays, you know, they all have a little story about what they think Lean is. What is your quick story about the evolution of Lean? What was it? How did it evolve? And what is it now? How would you characterize this very quickly, the, the evolution of, of Lean? Uh, well, it's impossible to talk about Lean uh, without mentioning Toyota production system, right? And Toyota as well didn't really invent Lean. Uh, Toyota developed the Toyota production system as a response to the challenges they were uh, facing after the Second World War. And they used 30 years to come up with what they developed, which was a whole system. A lot of those ideas uh, span many years back to Henry Ford, and they studied industrial engineering, and many of these things. But what Toyota did, which was unique, was the uh, just-in-time principle, and then putting this uh, into the system with Jidoka and standardization at, at kind of as a fundament. And by that, they were able to do something that the world of automotive hadn't seen at that period of time. Uh, they outcompeted, of course, everyone else. Then uh, MIT and uh, studied in the International Motor Vehicle Program these type of practices and compared it with the, with the Western manufacturing or automobile industry. And it was clear that whatever Toyota and uh, were doing, they were much, much better. That's when the word lean was born in 1988 with, a, with an article from John Krafczyk. Two years later, The Machine That Changed the World was published by Womack Johnson Shook. And uh, after that, everybody suddenly talked about lean. So that's very briefly the history of lean up to 1990. And since then, lean has taken many, many, many more new paths and it's spread across many different um, domains and areas. So I would say today, lean isn't Toyota production system anymore. It was maybe in 1990, but it's not Toyota production system anymore. I like to look at lean as a business phenomenon. And the best way for companies to go about it is to develop their own version of lean. So it becomes almost an umbrella term for improvement. Lots of it inspired by whatever Toyota did and is still doing. But it can also take inspiration from other companies. I call this company-specific production systems or XPS. And they are well known in industry. So they are everywhere. Volvo production system, Danaher production system, Boeing production system and so on and so on. That's interesting. So the useful part for you is this idea that you should spend a lot of time on your own way of doing things and do it methodically and in line with basically your own culture and your own resources. So that is the heart of Lean for you. It is the emphasis on developing your own method, your own production system, but also basically just making it your own. That is more important to you or it should be to any business leader, than following some sort of ethos of Ford or Toyota or, or, or all of these consulting frameworks that are showing up you know, around Lean. Because it, it is a big world now, right? Lean is a complicated 
field, or at least it appears that way. It is complicated because it's taking a lot of different uh, directions. There is something fundamental about Lean that I'd like to, of course, touch upon as well. But I totally agree in the point that companies need to develop something that works for them. So not all companies are in automobile industry. It's maybe even a strange thought that whatever Toyota is doing should fit 100% for other companies. Maybe they should take inspiration from a company like Siemens, who's trying to lead in the digital world. Or maybe they should take inspiration from a good hospital who's doing uh, maybe service operations. So it depends on the operations you're, you're making. Now, still, there's something fundamental about Lean that, that people need to understand, of course. And uh, maybe at the base of that is uh, focus on the customer, which is not unique to Lean, but it's absolutely essential to Lean. And then also the empowerment of the workforce. The thing that makes Lean different from many other things is that it tries to empower the workforce to do their own improvements. The job is not just to do the job, but also to improve the job. Hmm. That's crucial. Let's come back to, to sort of the fundamental part of Lean for uh, after a moment. I was just curious about the fact that Lean evolved from the automotive industry, uh, both with Ford and with Toyota. And for a long time, it seemed like the automotive industry then, because of that, perhaps, or because of the inherent nature, it was just such a fascinating and big industry, those two things. What is happening now and what are the industries that should develop their own lean framework? So you mentioned a digital aspect and Siemens, uh, you know, they're not per se just digital. I mean, Siemens is many things, but what are the other industries that you think basically should develop their own almost industry specific lean approaches? Or, or do you prefer not to see it that way? It's just the fact that the automotive industry clearly isn't the only influence anymore. So automobile industry it's as Peter Drucker said, uh, the industry of industries, and it still is. I mean, it's extremely competitive and they're improving year by year on all kinds of meticulous issues. So it's clearly still an industry to study. But not all companies are in, in, in automobile and not all everything that you, you do in the automobile industry would fit your setting. Uh, so what other industries should look to lean and try to look? everyone when we're talking about developing their own company-specific production system? The reason is simply that it helps put improvement into a system, into a framework. It's an exposed type of strategy. It's not a roadmap to be implemented one-to-one, but it provides direction, like a northern star that you would look for and try to seek. Hmm. So every every industry should think about the structured way of improving their business and this is one way, a proven way, perhaps, to do that. That's interesting. Can we uh, jump then to the fundamental aspect of Lean? And you mentioned two aspects, customer focus and empowerment. Can you reflect a little bit about these various sort of Lean-derived frameworks and to what extent they include these two things or, or, or other aspects? I mean, if you, if you think about how Lean is commonly understood today, maybe perhaps in books about Lean that sort of people might have been reading, what are the factors? I mean, would you say that the two that you mentioned are commonly understood as the heart of lean? Or would you say this is more your interpretation and is something that you're kind of advocating on the research side? I think this is, uh, it's not the common understanding, but it is the common understanding in the research community on lean. Uh, since the year 2000, I think we've some people were earlier out as well and looking at the human aspects of Toyota production system, particularly then. 
we've learned that the behavioral aspects are not to be uh, neglected. Sometimes uh, that doesn't mean that uh, these company-specific production systems or the, or, or the houses and uh, whatever company call them are good at incorporating these issues. One of the reasons is that it's extremely hard sometimes to codify, for example, a principle like respect for people. It's much easier to codify uh, 5S practices or Anden or Kanban cards. These are practical tools and techniques much easier to express in the form of a production system. Uh, but the more important part are the organizational aspects and, and the behaviors of people and how you, how you work together as a team and how you continuously improve the business, which requires a f- certain form of leadership as well. The research community knows these things. I mean, we've studied it. There's a lot of good books. Uh, just to mention, Jeff Liker maybe has written extensively on these things. But that's a difficult part. Many companies are still working on it. Well, th- this is interesting. So you're saying that some of these frameworks or some of these more practical applications like the Kanban, uh, you know, the cards and all that stuff, I mean, that does get a lot of the attention. And many of the books that are popular or the, the methodologies, maybe the more consulting-based methodologies, they really start with those very practical things. And you can understand that, right? Because it's, it's probably easier to implement as well. You can say, we're going to do this this month, or I'm coming in this week, and we're going to implement this method. Well, you're talking about the organizational aspect. That's something that would seem to be, first of all, you need leadership buy-in, and then, of course, you need full organizational buy-in. What, what does that process look like? Yeah, first, maybe let me roll back a little bit. I think there's two things companies should do from, from my perspective. It's to produce whatever they are producing to their customers and do that well. Production, if you'd like. If you're a service company, it looks a little bit different, but still, that's what you do. And companies are usually good at it, uh, at least partly because they are in business. Now there's one more thing they should do, and that is also to improve the business. And that's the hard thing. And that's where you have to put these things into a system. If you, for example, then look at the implementation of uh, value stream mapping or, or Kanban or 5S uh, yellow tape on the, on the floor and these kind of things, it's easy to do and uh, it's practical. Uh, easy for consultants, of course, to sell and you see it immediately. But what Toyota really meant with these methods were more like a vehicle for learning. It shows discrepancies. So if something is outside of the yellow marking, it's an opportunity to learn. And that's where many companies then, they stop. I mean, they put on in the common cards, they put in the Jidoka, the Andon ropes. But now what? There's where the leadership comes in and providing these opportunities for learning for the employees. Hmm. It's, it's a little bit higher level and harder to grasp, of course, than 5S or putting assembly steps in, in a line and, and these kind of things, which are very physical, which are also important. But uh, speaking about that, there, there seems to be sort of waves in lean in that, you know, somebody comes up with a new formulation and, and some of them are enormously successful, like uh, Six Sigma. But you've studied this over enough time that you've seen Six Sigma both being popular and then almost dying, I guess, and then sort of reconverging with Lean. Uh, and then you have the whole debacle around total quality management. And then if you, you, you were talking about digital before, so Agile became its own concept and then perhaps it's getting integrated into Lean. Tell me, how does this ebb and flow and how do you see that you know, from your sort of research side? 
Yeah, so these concepts come and go, of course, all the time. Uh, Abrahamson talked about these things a little bit as fad and fashion, but that's also for me a little bit too simple because for take, for example, Lean and elements of Six Sigma and elements of TQM, there's something to it. Otherwise, smart people in companies wouldn't really listen to it. There's, there's a reason why these things exist. There's something good. There's good principles and thoughts in many of these labels, if you'd like. But the market, of course, functions like this. Uh, consultants need something to sell. And uh, slapping a new label on it is much more valuable than, than using an old one. Also because you have then, uh, of course, something new to sell. That's part of the dynamic here. It's not necessarily bad because it also helps the world move forward and rethink these, these type of issues. Mm-hmm. All these things exist out there. Study them and take whatever fits your context and put it into your company-specific production system. Make something that works for you. Yeah. I want to talk about one concept that also, I guess, belongs in this family of, of, of production systems, uh, but it has to do a little bit more with supply chains, which everyone suddenly became very aware of over the last few years. Just in time is, I guess, an ideal within this idea of not wasting resources, which is so core to, to, to Lean. And you, know, you haven't you know, talked about waste particularly yet, but, but just in time, whatever happens to just in time now with you know, a more disorderly world, perhaps, and uh, disruption factors a little bit outside of the control of industry. I hope, uh, and I hope I'm not wrong, that the just-in-time will prevail. And I'm talking about the true understanding of just-in-time. Uh, the world has no other option. What's the alternative to just-in-time? Somebody said just-in-case, which basically means, you know, stock up with inventory, But if we do that for these complicated global supply chains we have, that just wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, where are you going to store all of these kind of things? And we know from the lean type of thinking that it's an inferior method to actually producing what you need when you need it. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Of course, sometimes you need toilet paper and you need all of these kind of things. But just in time as a principle, it's a better ideal than keeping inventory. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that's an important thing. I see a lot of journalists, uh, particularly, maybe take the easy understanding here that just in time is reduction of inventory. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, we got into a lot of problems during the pandemic. But it's too simple. If you want to make pancakes, there's no point in having stocked up with uh, egg if you're missing milk, right? Got it. So you need all the ingredients. And if you need all the ingredients in all chains of this very global long supply chains, it's just not sustainable. Hmm. For the world, it would be terrible. Torben, I wanted to uh, jump into you some of your research case studies a little bit. Give us a sense of some of the things that you've been looking into lately and, and what you're finding. Okay, so when it comes to lean, the big discussion in research right now is whether or not what's going on with lean versus digital. And of course, if you work with companies, as we do in our research, uh, the lean programs, the operational excellence program, the company-specific production system, tend to take a little bit of the back burner uh, at the moment. Everybody's talking about digital transformation and all of these kind of things. And companies struggle tremendously with how to organize their resources around these two quite different type of transformation programs. I mean, it's different skills needed, also a little bit different philosophies and these kind of things. So what we're trying to do is uh, not to make a way of lean, but see how lean will evolve again. I think that's the right way to look at it. So what's next for lean? 
And that is obviously with some integration of uh, using more data, using new digital technologies and these kind of things. How specifically have you investigated that? Because I, I do see that and it was going to be one of my next questions. How do you combine lean and digital? Because at the outset, you would sort of perhaps say they are quite different things because digital to many people, you know, is simply about adding a sort of transformation channel and, and something like that. Uh, whereas lean, you know, at least historically, the, the process of implementing lean hasn't looked the same as it is, you know, implementing digital for many also is about buying a computer system and sort of adding a system. So you're sort of adding an exogenous sort of factor on top of everything else. But then at the end of the day, it's, if you're trying to combine the two, which would seem like a good idea, what then starts to happen and how do you understand it? I'm, I'm just curious, what are some case studies that you've looked into mm-hmm. where companies either try to combine lean and digital or basically what are they doing? They're, they're adding digital and then what, what happens to their own production system, You know whether or not they call it you know, lean uh, or, or not. Uh, funny enough, I kind of not really care if you implement lean or digital because it's not, again, the objective of the company is one, to produce whatever you do and deliver and keep customers happy, but it's also to improve your production system uh, as you'd like. And that's where we use lean and digital, right? It's in, in an operational sense, we try to improve the production system. And if we look at it through this lens, uh, we will start to combine them. So Take, for example, uh, I will talk about Siemens first, maybe. It's a, it's a project we have uh, in the startup as well, Ethan AI, where we use explainable machine learning to solve a quality inspection problem. So it's very concrete. Uh, in the lean world, we've had Poca Yoke, you know, for 50 years. Even before that, we had statistical process control. Uh, for 100 years. These are the methods that companies are still using. They are, by the way, branded into Six Sigma and Lean and all of these things today, and visual management and these kind of things. And even after 100 years of using these methods and uh, 40 years of Lean, we still make errors in manufacturing. It's inescapable. Uh, It's because of variations in machines and in human labor and these kind of things. So we actually maybe need some other new technologies in order to help us weed out the last mile of productivity or the last mile of quality errors. And that's where machine learning seems to be actually a very appropriate technology. So to give you a specific example, we're working with a factory in Siemens that make printed circuit boards. And uh, these boards are partly manually assembled and uh, errors happen. Not often, actually very infrequently. So it's hard to use machine learning on these things because errors are infrequent. Then these smart guys that I work with, Julian Sinuner and and, uh, Bernard Kratzwald, have developed algorithms that are able to look at these uh, printed circuit boards through visual inspection systems. And basically, just based on 40 and 50 samples of good products, they are able to detect anomalies on products that may have a defect. Now, what we're doing, instead of trying to automate this process, which is difficult, because even if there's a defect, you would like to do something with it. So you need a human there to actually fix the issue or do some uh, problem solving. So instead, we augment the operator who is working there. And we provide uh, this operator basically just a visual image of uh, the printed circuit board with a heat map that shows probabilities of mistakes in certain errors. This makes this work much faster and much more accurate. Hmm. So in a study we did, uh, we did a, we run a field experiment on this. 
And here's the funny thing. Okay, machine learning is good in the sense that it was able to pick up a lot of the errors, okay? But when we give this machine learning to a, what we call a domain expert, a trained operator, the trained operator outperform the machine learning algorithm. It basically means an augmented human beats machine intelligence type system. Well, now you're speaking my language, right? This is what the podcast really tries to cover, some case studies that show that. I'm curious, uh, so you decided then to, with your uh, colleagues and students, to commercialize this under Ethan AI. At what point during your research did you realize that what you were figuring out here was very, very easy or was possible to apply as a concept and a business. And I'm just curious, that doesn't happen, obviously, with every research project. What was it about this particular one where you sort of saw that, oh, wow, we're we're basically solving an industrial problem here? This is one of uh, particularly two use cases perhaps this company is providing. The other one is uh, root cause uh, problem solving, which I can talk about later in another company. Uh, I think the thing that makes it unique is that the algorithms that we've developed are unique. I mean, they're not on the market. Nobody knows about this. And they are very, very different from the usual visual inspection system, which requires people to sit down and annotate uh, errors on product pictures. So most of the applications I see in the industry is actually some people sitting and annotating, here's an error, here's an error. That system usually never makes it beyond the pilot phase simply because uh, in manufacturing, things change all the time. It can be simple things as lighting conditions, but it can also be, uh, you know, new operators, the products change, the colors change. And then this manual work of annotating errors uh, is is quite time-consuming. So the thing that made us realize perhaps that we have something here is that we have an algorithm that is just superior to uh, what, what else is on the market. Well, it's fascinating because you're sort of saying two things. You're saying the humans are superior to the AI only when working in consort with the AI. Because I think a lot of people dismiss this idea that machines and humans need to work well together because they're sort of saying, well, we either have a machine and then the machine does it far better and it's sort of like decided. Or they maybe get stuck in what you were just saying that, oh, I understand what you're saying. You know, people need to annotate and prepare and then the machines will take over and make it more efficient. You're saying something much more advanced. You're saying it is the interaction in different steps and cleverly using algorithms where algorithms make sense and then interpretation, human interpretation and action where that makes sense. You're using kind of the strength of both systems. Absolutely. It's it's the best of two worlds. And honestly, it's the only thing that makes sense. Because even if you automate this process and you you throw out, uh, you know, a faulty, a defect product, what are you going to do now? I mean, you need, you you would like to figure out what was the cause of the problems. So you, then you want to have another algorithm for that, which you can have. And even if you figure out, okay, it's in this process, what are you going to do now? You need the human in the loop in manufacturing. Hmm. Anything else is wishful thinking, I believe. But having said that, though, you you know, at Ethan, you told me earlier, maybe it's changed now, but you said that Ethan only needs 40 pictures of good products, and then they run their anomaly detection algorithms and gives, you know, the warning. That is not a lot of pictures. I mean, state of the art. I mean, this... Because uh, if a human saying. were to sort of think, oh, I see, think I see a pattern, my assumption is you'd, you'd have to see more than 40 good products rolling along the assembly line before you could tell what was not a good product. I mean, this would take years of experience. 
Yeah, I think so. Well, humans are also extremely good, right? But the details here are hidden. It's not so easy to see. Mm-hmm. Of course, I truly, uh, I'm a co-founder of this company for the single reason that I truly believe they are, uh, we're onto something mm-hmm. uh, unique. And that, of course, is a computer science uh, algorithm that, that runs behind there that do this thing. And then, as you know, none of these things hit the market unless you have the human-machine interface that makes it easy for the operator to apply and these kind of things. I would I like to add one more advantage, and it's the explainability, which is often forgotten in AI. In manufacturing, if you don't have explainability or interpretability, you don't have really much of a chance to implement something on the shop floor. Tell me more about that. It's extremely important what you just said, because I think so much of machine learning is going to run into this problem, if only just because you know it's a civilizational problem. We just can't have these algorithms running around, not understanding what they're doing. Why is that in manufacturing such a pressing issue, which would seem to me to be a good thing, actually? Because we wouldn't want to have algorithms running around doing stuff we don't understand. But why are you saying it's instrumental in, in manufacturing? Is it because the, the workers need to understand what's happening? Otherwise, they kind of lose control of, you know, like a machine or, or the quality of their own product, basically. Partly. And that's it's a trust issue as well. You know, just, of course, we're also using black box algorithms, but then we explain them. That's the trick. And if you don't explain them, and say the algorithm makes a mistake, which it will happen, right? A false positive or a false negative. Then the operator sees this and say, ah, come on, I don't trust this system. You don't, you don't, you, you lose trust in the system. That's one thing. And then the second thing, as you said as well, I mean, it's about being in control of whatever you do. You'd like to know a little bit of what you, what's going on in this production system. A third thing is actually to be able to act on it. Let me give you another example from uh, Hitachi, which we worked with when we uh, developed this other uh, root cause analysis with AI. Basically, this is in semiconductor industry. The advantage here is that it's extremely data dense or the coverage of data is good, which is not very often the case in most manufacturing companies. So for us, the scientists, a wonderful playground. Uh, You can do things in semiconductor industry that you can't do elsewhere. Uh, the downside, again, is the semiconductor industry is extremely complex. Uh, so we're talking about 400 processes, loops, and all kinds of things. Uh, you can forget about value stream mapping, for example. It's just absolutely nonsense in this type of industry. And the most important parameter is yield. So how, how good products do you produce in the end, which is a huge competitive advantage in this industry can range from 40 to 90% or something, depending on. If you reach over 90%, the product is often obsolete. It's, it's an old product that nobody want to buy anymore. Hmm. So you can imagine 400 processes. And in each of these processes, you can measure vibration, temperature. Uh, you know the type of tools you have, the type of material, all of these parameters that you basically measure. And timestamps of whenever these products go into the machine so, hmm. and the wafers. Now, based on this, you create kind of a a model of the production system, which are only based on the data, where the outcome variable is the yield. And the machine learning algorithm is able to find relationships between these parameters. So whenever the the yield is bad, or you didn't achieve as much quality as you'd wish, the machine learning algorithm is able to point to likely positions in the production system where things went south. That's extremely valuable. And uh, in statistical process control, you could do this with uh, one parameter at a time. 
we do it with thousands of parameters. Mm -hmm. Well, it strikes me then that you know industries are still quite different, right? I know you have another uh, use case you were working on drones at IKEA. That would seem very far from semiconductors, but uh, but drones was that for visual inspection of uh, of floors? No, it's for uh, for inventory accuracy checking in IKEA. And you're you're right. This is at the absolute different uh, other specter of Industry 4.0 type technologies. What we see is that companies have lean programs and these kind of things. And they often also have Industry 4.0 digital transformation programs. In these programs, they're testing out new technologies. Mm-hmm. It's part also of the learning. And they're looking for the language of Industry 4.0 is the use case, right? Yeah. The language yeah. of lean is customer value. This is two big different things. Well, that's sort of why I was going to bring this up because industry 4.0 would seem to me to be kind of a sack of use cases. It just it's a lot of things. So drones may or may not be instrumental to your production process, but they're fun to think about and they're easy to I guess be fascinated by and you can sort of see potential because you know humans have been fascinated by flying since uh, you know the beginning. What do you think of Industry 4.0 and its role? Because I'm not going to sit here and say that experimentation and science and R&D and demos is wrong. It's not wrong. But you you did have a little dig in here because a production system and a company is only as good as its production system. And obviously, if you can't sell something to a customer, can't produce something, you don't really have a company. So where does industry 4.0 fit into this picture is it simply you know like a two percent little thing that you do on the side or is it actually fundamental well it's a good question uh but again from a production operations management perspective you know it's just uh, another label including a lot of new opportunities based basically on digital technologies and and, um, and connectivity. That's the new thing in Industry 4.0, whatever that is. What most companies reduce it to is maybe, as you say, a sack of use cases of new technologies. If you do it like this, obviously, we're looking at the, the small percentages here and there. But if you're able to figure out the right use cases at the right time, they can have absolutely fundamental effects. And there, the example of IKEA that we see, I mean, most companies like to use drones in their Industry 4.0 program simply because they have a high observability. You know, everybody sees them and wow, they're flying and they can even carry stuff and things. And second, a very high triability. You can just take a DJI drone if you'd like and take it into your factory and fly it around while you're producing. Nobody are hurt, nothing happens. So it's super easy technology to test out. And most companies end there. Maybe they take a video and put it on YouTube and they get thousands of clicks. And it looks like a very future-oriented company and these kind of things, which has a value on its own. But if you go back to IKEA, they actually have a real problem with inventory accuracy, which all retail companies have. Inventory accuracy in retail, I mean, that's one of your competitive advantages, knowing what you have on stock and um, where and these kind of things. I'm just curious. So, I mean, you know, at a media lab at MIT, they talk about uh, demo or die because, you know, if you can't demo something, you know, you you don't really have a product. You don't have a project even. You you have nothing to show for. But here it seems like it's demo and die. It's like, it, it's not like the more you demo, the more you'll, you, you'll achieve. So I'm just curious, what was it at IKEA that makes this useful? Is it because, you know, 
it's such a, at the heart of the business model of Ikea, I would assume, is inventory. Because, you know, it's not just that the factories are massive, but their show spaces are also massive. So it is a very physical business that they, at least historically, have been in. How, how effective were these drones? Or, or is that what you were researching? That's exactly what we've been researching. And this is interesting from a lean perspective as well, because the gut feel when you go into this type of environment from a lean perspective is that this shouldn't be necessary. I mean, how, putting things at the right place and marking it and putting it into the system, that's good standardization. And you can even use uh, visualization, peak by light, all of these things. IKEA knows, come on, it's a, you know, a leading company in retail, maybe among the top three, something like this. Still, humans make mistakes, not on purpose, but humans make mistakes. When you're moving thousands of pallets every day, you make mistakes. Okay, so now the question is, can you use drones to go and check the inventory accuracy? So one thing, as you say, you need like an ID, like there should have to be some value to it. What you actually also need is technology that works. And in this case, if you have technology that works 95% of the time, it's just not going to be good enough. So IKEA has teamed up with a startup called Verity, who are absolutely world-class again on drone technology. They are the guys who who fly drone shows on Broadway and uh, doing a lot of, lot of real cool things. And they're specializing on indoor drones. In a, for example, just to give an example, in a warehouse in uh, Zurich, IKEA, in, uh, outside Zurich, eight drones, every night they fly and take um, inventory records of positions that have been moved during the day. It means basically every single morning, this IKEA warehouse has 100% knowledge about their inventory accuracy, which is unheard of in most type of retail companies. Mm. And it's fully autonomous, I should say as well, because if you're dependent on a drone pilot to stand there, then you should just get the ladder instead and start to climb. Mm. So the fully autonomous state-of-the-art technology has been helpful for IKEA in this uh, case. So I want to move briefly to sort of the future outlook in the lean environment and, and in production systems. And, and I want to ask it in a kind of a strange way, perhaps, but your PhD seems to have been on company-specific production systems, right? You studied Volvo and then the Bosch production system, if I'm right. What, if anything, is different from when you studied these systems now and then into into the future? Because, you know, your whole argument here seems to be that the heart of Lean, the heart of a company, is its proprietary, perhaps, production system. What will be the future competitive advantage of a company? If you sort of think about what you you know, have studied for so long, which is these company-specific production systems. Is that still going to be the advantage? And how do you get there in the future in a more efficient way? How do you develop your own production system? The system in, in itself is, of course, not a goal or, or not the most important thing. The only thing that matters in the end is the thing that happens on the shop floor or on the Gamba if you're in a service company or in an office. These systems are vehicles or structures that help you get there, but they are struggling a little bit today. Uh, Take Volvo production system as an example. When I studied it back in the 2010s, it was classically in program with a lot of the uh, principles close to Toyota production system with Jidoka just in time, the culture at the bottom, standardization and continuous improvement, all these classic things with Lean. Then then it developed in the mid-2010s, in around 2015. 
they developed a new system which integrated organizational development, a long-standing organizational culture development framework. So it becomes softer, if you'd like. They also extended it to end-to-end integration, less focus on factories, more on supply chains. Okay, so the system grew. It becomes a little bit more holistic. That's a benefit. But the drawback is that it becomes harder to know exactly what it is. And now, just two weeks ago, I was talking with Volvo again, and they have the questions that you have. Okay, uh, what do we do with digital transformation? Are we going to change our system? Is it something that should run in parallel? If it run in parallels, uh, how do we do it with resources? Are we are we really sending two teams to each factory to go every second week to confuse the employees of what we're going to doing, and all of these kind of things? So companies are right now struggling with um, how to integrate this lean operational excellence thinking with digital uh, transformation. Well, the reason that is so complicated and perhaps wrong-headed sometimes, right, is that if your version of digital transformation is, we are going to make this massive digital investment, we're going to pick a system, and then we're going to just listen to who, what the implementers of that system tell us that we need to do to change our business in order to accommodate that system. It would seem to me that that approach is exactly the opposite of lean and certainly exactly the opposite of what they have been doing before because they've been spending 30 years on trying to perfect their own organization. And then here, some executive says, well, now we have budget and we need to get into the future. The future costs money and we're making the investment. Once we've made the investment, we're going to have to change to accommodate whatever system we have bought. Tell me, does digital necessarily have to imply that you wholesale buy a systemic process? Or can digital, good digital sometimes not come with a system? In other words, you can keep your own system and you just do digital. Absolutely. I think actually the latter... Some people seem to think that if we're really going to do digital transformation, we do need standardized, uh, you know, uh, SCADA systems on the shop floor. We need standard MES systems. We need standard ERP system. And that's often where they start. I mean, that may be needed in order to collect data on a global basis, but then what? I think a much more, sust- I'm talking from a manufacturing perspective, mm-hmm. it's much more sustainable to develop uh, the factories that you have, uh, maybe with add-on technologies that solve problems that the factories actually are experiencing. That's good lean thinking. And if you just use technologies instead of, you know, whiteboards, and that's just a good way forward. Hmm. And maybe, Tron, I want to say one thing, as maybe you've heard, I'm talking a lot from the manufacturing perspective, and that is my perspective, but there is probably more to digital transformation than improving current operations. And that's, of course, where the new business models come in, mm-hmm. uh, servitization, what digital can offer to your customers. And uh, that is worth, uh, I mean, considering as well on its own. But perhaps you don't have to put that into uh, the, the daily struggles of the factories. Mm. So my last question then, because this is has been fascinating, you, you have such a broad and deep you know, understanding of production systems. If one is to learn about this, I'm assuming since you wrote a textbook, well, at least if you're a student, you're saying, you know, read my new introduction to manufacturing, which I believe is going to be out on Ritledge, you know, this year. So that's one answer, obviously, read up-to-date textbooks on manufacturing and industrial engineering. But where else do you go? I mean, you're an academic, I'm assuming you read academic articles, but what would you advise someone perhaps of a more applied nature 
where should they take their inspiration from and what are the sources that really teach you contemporary manufacturing techniques between digital and, and lean? Well, there's no greater teacher than the Gamba. So go visit other companies and reflect. Uh, not everything they do would uh, apply and a lot of the things they show doesn't really work. But if you go in with a critical mind, uh, you're bound to learn something. So I'd, I'd say the happy if you want to, uh, anybody want to read the textbook, it's 800 pages. So probably not <laughs> many people going to read that from cover to cover. Maybe a combination of, you know, listening to your podcast, reflecting, uh, going to other factories, trying out things in your own factories, the most important thing, learning by doing. And then basically just stay, stay up to date with whatever is happening. And uh, it's fine to live with uncertainty. I mean, it's, it's fine that uh, we don't get all the details and understand everything because nobody does. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no guru out there that knows everything. That's why we would need to seek different perspectives from different sources uh, all the time. Mm. Fascinating. I love that attitude to be satisfied even with, with the fact that you can't have perfect knowledge. I guess it's a realistic attitude for anybody who has tried to run a factory, right? I mean, you've been to many factories. These are not, it's not perfection. I've never seen one, right? Uh, no, not even the uh, Lighthouse projects, which I'm part of in the World Economic Forum. These are excellent companies to go and learn from, but they are far from perfect. So that's just how it is. Hmm. Maybe I should say as well, Tron, since you mentioned, yeah, you can read my 800-page textbook. But if you don't bother, I have a YouTube channel with, uh, you know, four-minute videos, for example, explaining lean and Toyota production system and uh, company-specific production system. That really is, in a nutshell, how I think about these things. So what you suggest is basically for people to just choose their channel, right? So if they, uh, you know, if if you're into reading, there's plenty of material available from you and many, many others. But... Teachers are starting to take onto digital and, and video and, and multimedia channels as well. So there's there seems to be a lot of material out there. Start experiencing and testing and trying and learning and, and keep keep that process going seems to be your advice here. Absolutely. And develop a sense of critical thinking. Because if you don't, you will be really buried in bad advice. That's so. actually a great part to end with because I would say the overload of information leading to Paralysis is something you also don't think is a smart strategy at this point, right? You, you have to have a strategy to, to avoid paralysis. It, it is, I guess, I guess, every factory owner's big fear is when the production system stops. So I guess the analogy to knowledge is if you are trying to learn so much that you have to take a break and you, you, you can't act, that is actually the worst outcome. That's uh, Muri, overload. Uh, Muri Mura Muda, that's also a good way to stop Tron because it's so fundamental to lean thinking. And uh, if we understand that and don't not just focus on Muda, uh, we'll actually do much better in our lean transformations as well. Torbjörn, on that note, I thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope I can come back to you. I actually have a lot more questions now than answers, but I think hopefully there are better questions than I started with. So I I hope we can uh, bring you on in a panel or some other discussion, because I think these things that you are presenting here, it's more the beginning than the end of a research agenda. Would you agree? Absolutely. And that's the fun thing by being in research. There's no end to it. That's great. All right. Thank you, Torbjörn. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 84 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was the evolution of lean, and our guest was Professor Torbjörn Netland, Chair of Production and Operations Management at the top Swiss university ETH Zurich and co-founder of Ethan AI. In this conversation, we talked about the evolution of lean as a business phenomenon. 
My takeaway is that lean might be an ever-evolving concept centered around how to best improve industrial performance. Orthodoxy around what it means is not helpful, yet clarity about key objectives and tactics is still important. The role of technology in lean is controversial, but one thing is for certain, lean is primary to technology. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 49 on lean manufacturing in the USA with guest Carl Wardenstein, who is the CEO of Vipco. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operations platform that connects the people, the machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.